Hello, my beautiful woman English listeners. Welcome back. I am about to run to the airport after this recording and fly to Bali for, I think it's like a 20-hour flight. So I'll update you guys on that. But for now, I am so excited to introduce this week's guest. Amira Rasul is the CEO and founder of The Folklore. If you don't know The Folklore, it is really changing the way retailers and consumers discover African brands globally. In April, Amira became one of the youngest Black women to raise a million plus in a pre-seed round. Amira started as a fashion editor, which led to her studying in South Africa, which inspired her to launch The Folklore in 2018 at just 22 years old. Incredible. She shares how she personally scouted brands across the continent to join the platform and how she translated her vision to evolve from her original wholesale business to a B2B and shopping aggregator platform for investors to scale across to incredibly talented African brands globally. Prior to launching The Folklore, Amira was a writer and fashion editor that has worked with several notable publications, including Time, Vogue, Team Vogue, Paper, Glamour, and Style, V Magazine, and Women's Wear Daily. Amira is a passionate Black history scholar. For her undergraduate education, she attended Rutgers University, where she received a BA in African-American and African Studies. She later earned a Master's of Philosophy in African Studies from the University of Cape Town. I loved this conversation with Amira. She is brilliant. And I just love the business model of the folklore. You have to check it out. It's just absolutely gorgeous. And I think just so incredibly well executed and thought out. I love the mission behind everything she does. And I'm so honored to have her on the show. Now let's get over to my conversation with Amira. Welcome to the Woman Inc. podcast. This is the place for the new generation of women looking to lead the life of their absolute dreams. I'm your host, Jenna Toddy, entrepreneur, life coach, and strategist for modern businesswomen and entrepreneurs. I am a city girl, sriracha lover, and that friend who will hype you up when you forget how powerful you truly are. I am on a mission to make Women Inc. the most powerful network of women who are leveling up, owning what they want, and becoming who they've always wanted to be. Have you ever wondered what it would look like if you went all in on yourself? No turning back. If so, you are in the right place, my girl. Let's get started. Hello, Amira. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. Yes. So your background is like what I wanted my background to be when I was 18 and starting and wanting to be in fashion. You have such a cool background even before starting the folklore. So can you first, before we get into all things the folklore, walk us through a little bit about how you started your career? Sure. Yes. So I started my career in the media space, actually. So I uh, attended Rutgers uh, University in New Jersey. So I was really close to New York and actually lived in New York while I was uh, attending there. So I was able to have access to all of these great fashion publications that were based in the U- uh, based in New York. So I actually interned. My first magazine was at Women's Wear Daily. That was my first internship. Uh, and then I did Mary Claire after that, did V Magazine, and then I did The Fader. And 
you know, I, my dream was to be the editor in chief of Vogue, just growing up in New Jersey and Hathaway growing up in the town next to me <laughs> yeah. and being a double wears Prada. Like, so I really, I really, you know, had that dream and was on that path. And while I was in my senior year of college, I took my first trip to uh, Africa because I was actually majoring in African American and African studies um, and just got really interested in you know, Black people just around the globe, not just in America, which is what I primarily learned when I was growing up. And that's kind of when the trajectory of my career uh, shifted a bit is when I you know, took that trip my senior year and visited South Africa. And I kind of went from, oh, I want to be this, you know, cool fashion editor who travels around to Paris Fashion Week, et cetera, to, you know, I want to start something um, and I want to make an, a bigger impact than I thought I could have with the original career goal. Yeah, it's so amazing. And I, I heard you say this once in a podcast, you were talking about how everyone is like European fashion and it's just, it really is so rooted in systemic racism, but it's like, I went to fashion school. I did not study any African designers, like not one, which is just so terrible. So I think what you're doing is, incredible, but it's also like, there's such amazing designers all over the world. So how did, I know when you took this trip to South Africa, what was like the moment you're like, this is what I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to build this. So I think it was actually when I returned back. So when I got there, just like you, I, you know, I'd taken FIT pre-college courses. I'd read Vogue and all those magazines cover to cover all through college. And in high school. And so I also was unaware that these amazing designers existed. You know, kind of what I saw of African fashion was very like monolithic where it was, you know, just these prints and, you know, the Dutch wax prints in Ankara that people are used to. I had no idea that there was a whole, you know, movement, not even just in South Africa, but in other African countries of people who were doing things that were more contemporary and, and, um, more abstract than what we we typically think of when it, we think of African design. So when I got there, that's when I was able to discover that. And I just fell in love with these designers that were, you know, mixing things that, you know, you might associate with Western design, with local design and, you know, fabrics. And they had such a different and strong point of view that we weren't used to seeing because we're not even used to being in the settings that they're pulling their inspiration from. And so when I got back, that's actually when, you know, I started wearing some of the pieces that I purchased and uh, telling people how much I loved South Africa and how I want to go back and find a way to live out there. People would stop me, you know, in the street saying, hey, like, I love those sandals. I love that bag. You know, I wanted to also find ways to be able to access these products again. And so I started doing some research to, you know, figure out what how I could access these brands again. And I realized that they didn't have direct-to-consumer websites of their own at the time, most of them. Uh, they also weren't stocked in retail stores outside of their home country. So inevitably, the only way for me to really be able to access these goods again is if I hopped back on that 16-hour flight. And that was not something that my college uh, budget would allow. So <laughs> I think that's really where I saw the disconnect between there's people like me um, that are unaware uh, but when they are able to discover them, they're going to want easier access to these products. And 
there's really no reason other than, you know, systemic racism that these brands have not been given their just due and, and allowed the opportunity to, you know, t- uh, touch customers like like myself. So as a as a way of, you know, one solving a problem that I had and I knew that, you know, millions of other people would have would have um, and also as a way to find a way to make a bigger impact, um, to be able to use my love for Black people and and being able to see us uh, succeed socially, economically, politically, I figured I could use, you know, my knowledge of history and storytelling and that journalism and my network within New York that I had built up, my love for fashion, um, to be able to create, you know, economic opportunities by helping these brands scale, reach global customers, be able to, you know, increase the job. Um, employment on the continent, um, be able to, you know, really make an impact. It's amazing. And I mean, you're so young when you started, 22 years old. Actually, a lot of women listening are in that age group. So what was like running through your mind of starting a business for the first time at 22 years old? Like, were you just kind of like, I'm just going to do this, having all the confidence to just run with it? Or were you kind of like thinking it through slowly? Well, I knew I didn't want to work for anybody anymore. Um, so I only actually worked for a year out of college. I worked at V Magazine for a year and um, that was enough for me. I said, um, You're like, I'm done. Gonna be, yeah, I said, this will be my first and last job. I mean, I, I did like jobs when I was younger. Like I worked at Hollister when I was in high school part time and worked at Urban Outfitters when I was in college. But, you know, that was my first like, okay, I'm a salaried employee, you know, I'm an, I'm adulting. And uh, I've I've always known, even when I was young, I kind of had like a thing with authority. Uh, and so I, I wasn't really good at following, you know, the rules and, and doing the most conventional and take, I, I didn't really take the most conventional path. So I, I had always known I wanted to start a business. I did think it was going to come after me working a little bit longer, but I just saw an opportunity and I believed in myself. And I said, why wait? Like, what is a few more years of, you know, working, doing something that doesn't necessarily translate to what I now want to do? What's the purpose of doing that? So I kind of just bet on myself. I had applied to the University of Cape Town uh, when I when I discovered that I was interested in building this business so that that would give me access to a visa so I could stay in South Africa for two years. I thought it was important for me to be on the ground if I was going to start this business. It would have been difficult for me to start it still living in the States. Uh, so when I got into the University of Cape Town, I told my dad and I was like, yeah, I just got to University of Cape Town. I think I'm going to move to South <laughs> Africa. He was like, what is there to think about? Just go. And so I think it was also Love having like, the, support, the support of my dad and him saying, you know, okay, mm-hmm. you know, I'll invest in, I'll invest in the business, help you out. Like, so I think it's a matter of like my confidence in myself and my, mm-hmm. you know, drive to just be able to say, if I put my mind to it, I'm going to do it. But also like that was something that was instilled in me, you know, by my dad and then continued to, he continued to push that um, when it came time to make the decision. Yeah. That's such, that's an amazing gift. I think I have that from my parents too. And it's like, not everyone has that. And I do think that gives you this like intrinsic confidence when you have that support. For sure. So you get to... South Africa. And what is something that you didn't expect or that like 
Did anything shake you when you were in the beginning stages of building this and living in a different country? Well, I think the funniest story, I don't think I've told this before, is the day I got to <laughs> Cape Town, I it was nighttime. I took a later flight and I had taken a taxi to the Airbnb that I was staying in uh, until I found an apartment and that I left my backpack with my laptops, money, uh, passport, everything in the back of the uh, taxi I took. <laughs> and I realized when I got to, I, when I started unpacking that I had nothing. And um, I kind of started freaking out. I think I called my sister and started calling people like, oh my God, what do I do? And I couldn't remember the taxi name and how it was organized. So, but I actually somehow, I don't know how it happened. I got a hold of the taxi person or maybe the person just noticed and they brought it back to me. And I thought <gasps> that that was, and you know, everything was there. And I was like, wow, this is how I'm starting <laughs> off my journey. Like, this is why this at, tw- at 22 years old, I just got up, hopped on a plane and moved to a different country after only being there for a year. And I was like, oh my God, is this about to be indicative of like what this is supposed, what this journey is going to be like? But really, I feel like that was the worst thing that, you know, happened after that, I think. Yeah, um, it was like it, a it definitely, Yeah, it definitely <laughs> just like let let me know that, okay, Amir, like this is real life. You're not just like living at, you know, yeah. on the same block as all your friends in Bed-Stuy anymore. Like um, you have <laughs> to, you know, make sure that you're being um, smarter about, you know, how you approach life now. That definitely did not, you know, happen again. The rest of the journey was um, was, a, was a lot easier. Um, just being able to, you know, one, make a lot of friends from being in my master's program. And I always say people who are like African-American and African studies majors always like happen to be like the flies people on the planet. So yes. them being able to introduce me to a lot of designers and being inspired by their style, being inspired by like their stories and just so many things that I that I learned from them. Uh, then just also like putting myself out there, going to fashion events, going to going to boutiques, like getting to know people there. I started writing for the local Mary Claire there. You know, really wanted to immerse myself and and learn as much as possible and come in as a sponge and not have any ideas or try to impose any of my ideas. Uh, and then I I started traveling um, to other African countries as well. Uh, so I went to Lagos for Lagos Fashion Week, gone to Accra, gone to Kenya. Um, and at that time, I was also writing for different publications. So I was writing for, uh, like I contributed to Vogue and Glamour and Teen Vogue. And um, I was able to also leverage that to start interviewing some of the brands that I potentially wanted to work with and be able to spotlight them and, and really be able to kind of get in the door that way. Because as somebody who's just like popping up saying, hey, I want to start this thing, no one's going to really pay attention to me. I have worked for a year maybe. And, you know, so um, I think that that, provided some legitimacy. And yeah, from there it was, a, I was able to just build relationships with these brands. And, you know, I built my business model off of the conversations I was having with them. I wanted to know what, what it was that they wanted to do with their business, you know, how they typically do business now. And then I had to do research around how, you know, US-based retailers, know, knowing that we, this was still going to be a US-based company, how they typically do business and basically create my own strategy based off of the the norms of, you know, the West and the norms of the brands that we're, that I'm that I'm working with. 
Um, and knowing that who our customer was was going to be mostly U.S. customers, I uh, had to also think about how they like to be catered to, uh, marketed to, uh, how they like their goods delivered. So, yeah, I think a lot of it was just like uh, me learning and, and being the historian that I am and really digging into like the past and then being able to really create a plan that would that would provide us with, you know, the resources that we need to have like a pretty powerful future. Yeah. I mean, I think it says so much about you, especially as a businesswoman, because that's really hard, I think, to be in the middle of both sides and understand like the needs of these designers and also what their, what like their fears would be. And then also understand like one side, if they trust me and I have like this, this design to be able to bring to the U.S., making sure the U.S. is going to actually receive it and say yes, and like you can you can start from there. But I think that middle position, it takes a lot of skill. Yeah, thank you. So once you begin, I guess, like building these relationships and having designers who you really want to come on your site, what was like the beginning stages of building the folklore? Did you have a team yet or were you doing this completely on your own? I was doing this mostly on my own. I, you know, would have friends that would come in and say they'd help and kind of like fall in and fall out. So it was mostly just me doing, creating this business plan. I created a very long business plan. Um, and I, I started out with, I think, like a list of like over 150 questions across categories, like finance, marketing, like who the customer is, how the business would operate, how we make money. And I answered all of those questions. That was my goal to answer all those questions, then format it into a business plan and then find somebody to, you know, build the type of Shopify site that I want, identify the brands, go after them, get the brands and then find a way to get them to the States and market them. So I knew based off of my background in media, I was going to be able to like secure some pretty good press initially. And so that was, that was basically the strategy there because I didn't have any money to like do paid paid ads or anything like that. Um, right. I knew I was, I knew that I was good at, you know, creating um, nice visual content. So I knew to create like a really cool lookbook to, that would get people excited. Um, and, you know, after being able to convince about 20 brands to let me stock them, you know, found a way to get all of them to get all of the products to the States. And then we uh, launched during New York Fashion Week on September 8th. 2018 with a pop-up shop and kind of like a launch party. And so, yeah, I mean, while, you know, my friends came and helped me, you know, with, with the launch party, my dad came and helped with the launch party, like setting everything up. So um, definitely had the support of my community, but in terms of like, for I think almost for until about 2000, I didn't hire my first person until 2021. Um, They were people who would just come and go, who were like, you know, working for equity and, you know, things like that. And maybe stay for two months max. But um, I didn't really start building a team out until 2021. Yeah. It used to drive me crazy when I first started my business and I had no money. And I would, it would be like, the number one thing is hire your team. I'd be like, I would love to do that. How? Exactly. <laughs> you know? Oh, people never. can't work for free. Like, you know, people can't, you know. No. And, Especially in New York. And I think... Exactly. And I think that that's something that um, I think is even more difficult for Black business owners is to try to um, build a team of other Black people because we already have so many 
things set against us that, you know, we don't have generational wealth. We're not able to just say, oh, I'm going to take a take a stab at this startup that gives me no benefits or no pay. Um, that's something that, you know, other communities are able to do, but not something that we can do. And so when people are like, I don't get it, why can't you find people? It's any good entrepreneur can find people to buy into what you're doing and help you out. And I'm just like, yeah, but not if you're trying to build a diverse team. You know, you can't yeah. you can't measure us with the same stick, especially because we're not given the same opportunities. So that was something where it's like I wanted to be intentional and build my team with other black people. And so it it, it made it a bit more difficult um, to be able to find people that would commit to taking a pay cut or no pay at all. And, you know. Yeah. And believe in that vision of like, ugh, I think that that makes so much sense. That makes so much sense. So once you start growing, right. And you kind of like are figuring this out. I know you were doing like consignment at first and you're shipping up. You're like holding all of the inventory, which in my mind, when I first heard that, I was like, oh, that gives me a panic attack. Like that is so much work. And I don't know if people know how much work that is of like inventory management yes. on your own. <laughs> a lot. And my mom actually, when I, cause I went back to Cape town to finish my degree so my yeah. mom, for those first like six or seven months, was actually shipping it from her house. Oh, mom. Mom's the best. That's amazing. <laughs> my mom mm-hmm. would not. My mom would mess <laughs> that up. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Okay, so you start growing, right? What was the moment where you felt like, I've got this. Like, I feel like I just built a legit company. Then when I hired my first employee and, and got, into, got into Techstars, like, and, you know, got our first investment. That was all like around the same time. Um, because it's one thing to be able to, you know, get customers to like what you're doing. And, um, but it's another thing to get other people so invested that they're willing to, you know, come on to your team. They're willing to, you know, invest in your company. And I think that's the moment that I knew, okay, like other people also recognize the value in this. And I've built something that even though still small is compelling enough to get people to invest, whether it's their time or their money. And so at that point, I knew that, okay, so this is something that if these people can invest their time and their money, that means I'm on the right, I'm on the right path. And so I think that's kind of what I thought of it as more like a legitimate, you know, business to, like in 2021, where I always thought it was a business and I always wanted to scale it. And I was always confident that I could but that was that indication, you know, that was that benchmark that I really wanted to hit because it would have been very difficult for me to continue to do it as a self-funded solo person. It would have been actually impossible. Um, and so that is definitely the moment that changed things for me and had me thinking um, in a more expansive way than, okay, this is just, you know, a cool e-commerce store, but this can be something much bigger, much bigger than that. Yes. And it is now. So you've built this incredible B2B platform. Can you tell us about what went into the thought process of starting the B2B platform Connect? Yes. So with the Folklore Connect, it was already in the back of my mind since like almost a few months after we launched the DTC. Uh, And that's because we started getting inbound emails from retailers after we launched uh, asking us to connect them with some of the brands that we had, because I think at the time, almost like 80% of the brands on our platform were only sold online through us, or we were the only retailer carrying them. 
And so just like consumers were discovering these brands on our platform, so were buyers, uh, retail buyers. And so, you know, I, I kept thinking like, oh, this would be great to open up like a wholesale arm so that these brands can have even more retailers selling their products. And we, we did some, some one-offs. You know, we helped uh, Tokyo James get into Dover Street Market. Uh, last year, we done some one-offs with getting two of our brands into a Atlanta boutique, but we couldn't, you know, like, especially because it was still just mostly me, I couldn't basically run two businesses successfully that way because they, they are two very different businesses. Uh, and so, you know, I kind of would only do it sometimes. And then I think post George Floyd, um, when all of these retailers, you know, came out and, and they were called out by consumers and for not, you know, putting more effort into diversifying the vendors they worked with, I think that I saw that as a, um, a, as a time where we could come in and support these retailers and helping them uh, reach the goals that they had set um, in terms of diversity and inclusion. And we already had the network of brands. We knew that our brands wanted to be able to sell to people other than just the folklore. Uh, we saw that the retailers, you know, had, we started having conversations with some retailers. We had done the partnership with Farfetch where we tripled the amount of black owned brands on their platform. And that was a very manual process for us to be able to partner with, um, Farfetch and especially for us to be such a small company. Um, so we were like, there has to be an easier way to, uh, help these, these retailers, uh, meet their goals, uh, their diversity goals and, we should just do that through technology. And that is going to make a way bigger impact than us just placing small 10, 15K orders with our brands. Um, you know, every few months, we can be helping them have thousands of retailers that are placing these types of orders with them. And instead of us going and competing against the Nordstrom's and, and all of those companies uh, to sell the same products, we can just help them uh, connect with these, these um, brands. So, we, you know, decided to pivot our focus uh, to B2B uh, and we launched the Folklore Connect as a beta in April as a closed beta. And we're currently working on um, launching the full version that'll be open to the public at the end of August. And really the Folklore Connect is a space to empower global retailers to discover and shop these brands. Uh, so it's a two-sided uh, B2B marketplace where you know, brands can go in, upload the products they have available for retailers to purchase. Uh, they're able to receive orders, um, receive payment, manage all their orders online, you know, automatically create shipping labels and, and everything that they need to be able to ship the products directly from their production facilities to the retailers. Um, and then the retailers have access to a vetted group of designers that they would have otherwise probably had difficulties finding. Uh, we vetted them to make sure that they are able to deliver. They have quality products. Uh, and when, um, and then, and then retailers are able to really, uh, filter through brands and products, um, and, and do purpose driven shopping. We really are focusing on conscious commerce so they can go in and say, I'm looking for a clean beauty brand or I'm looking for a woman owned brand or LGBTQI brand. Uh, and be able to see products or the brands that fit within that scope, uh, place those orders, uh, and they're able to, you know, um, have the support of 
the folklore connect as well because everyone um, has access on the brand side and the retail side to be able to message us and we can support if there's any issues, um, we can help solve any problems. Um, but really we're just you know providing the technology to the brands and the retailers and then pro- providing any support in terms of um, making sure that they have the best interaction and that the retailer gets the products that they need and that the consumers are able to uh, appreciate, buy and enjoy those products. I think it's going to be huge. I think it's such a great idea. When I first, I use Shopify B2B, which I love Shopify, but their B2B platform is <laughs> not the best. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's incredible. I think it's going to be Thank really you. big. So you start off as a 22-year-old founder and growing this business. What is something you feel like just as a woman on a personal level you have had to develop in order to really be the founder that you want to be? I think that I had to develop, I think, even tougher skin and be okay with no and not necessarily okay with it, but not letting it impact me or not letting me th- deter me from continuing to to push forward with what I'm doing. Like, you know, I'm I'm always open to to feedback and I like to hear from people who may dis- disagree with what I'm doing or disagree with, you know, the way that I'm doing it. But there's so much no in this business, whether it's from investors, whether it's from potential clients, customers. I, and so I really had to be able to not let that stop me and not let that get me down. And I think that confidence wise, I've always had a lot of confidence in myself. But when you hear it so much, you know, you hear no so much or so much negativity so much, it can even have the most confident person, you know, kind of questioning. Uh, and so I think my confidence definitely uh, boosted even more um, th- throughout this process and needed to, for sure, in order for me to be able to also, I think when it comes to raising capital, like I needed to have more confidence in that. And I would often like listen to podcast interviews and read articles from white males who were business leaders and kind of hear how they talked and, 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 and how they responded to things. And I kind of wanted to adapt some of those qualities, like having the confidence of a white man in, this, in America <laughs> is like, is like having a different level of confidence. And I was like, I want to be able to walk into rooms. Yeah. With that, like sometimes irrational confidence like that, like, yes. where it's like, I don't really even know if this makes sense for you to be this confident <laughs> yourself. Like I wanted to be in that, in that space. And um, I think that I adapted those qualities a bit and it's definitely helped. Oh my God, that's funny. You should trademark that. (laughs) Yeah. Let's quickly talk about fundraising. I know you were one of the youngest Black women to raise a a million dollars, which is incredible, but also made me think like there should be more. How, I we have a little insight into your mindset now of that confidence building, but how else do you feel like you prepared for these talks and what advice would you have for other young women, um, especially Black women who are going into these meetings to try to raise money? Uh, Yeah, I would say talk to as many people as possible um, about the process and be very specific in your questions and your ask and have like advisors and mentors around you that you can check in with during before the process and after. And I was lucky lucky enough to be in Techstars Seattle and uh, tech incubator that 
really helped me um, when it came to preparing to start raising. So I finished that program and I think like two weeks later started raising. Um, and most of the program was, you know, helping me prepare for raising capital. And uh, in that preparation, it was being able to uh, learn how to tell a story, tell our story in a way that investors would would find it appealing and then be able to um, run a really tight and organized fundraise. Uh, so knowing that like if you're trying to raise money, you really are not going to be working or running your business for that entire period. So like being able to say, look, there's going to be some things that might slip through the cracks from this business because I'm going to need to focus on, you know, just raising right now, identifying the right investors, having a really good way of tracking, you know, your communication with them, um, being able to keep them all on the same timeline. These were all things that like I was very organized with how I, you know, um, went about this process, like had my, my list before, before I, before like you know, weeks before I was able, even able, even going to go raise, being able to get the uh, the introductions I need and really do a lot of LinkedIn uh, digging to be able to find those people who could provide me those introductions. Um, and then tapping into my network, talking to, you know, my mentors as the process was going like, hey, this person said this, what do you, do you think that's a good side, bad side? So yeah, I think that really, you really need to to be able to talk to multiple people with multiple perspectives that have done this before because it's very difficult to just kind of like use Google as your roadmap. Um, it's, it's a very difficult process, especially when you're a black, a black woman. Um, there are a lot of things that you're going to experience that other people don't. So I also always recommend you finding a black woman or a few black women that can also, you know, give you advice. So I think, yeah, that's the that's the main way I think I had success in it. I set the goal, set the plan, and I followed it through. So good. Okay, this is my last question. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. But my last question is, what would be your number one piece of advice for a woman who is starting out her own business? I always say scared money don't make none. So <laughs> you can't be afraid to ask for what you want. Um, you don't have to like, you, you can be direct about it. You come with, okay, I want this and why, um, and what that will provide to the other person. I think that, you know, closed mouths don't get fed. And the worst that somebody can say is no. And you can often turn those no's into maybes and then a yes. So I think that is the biggest thing to really think about, like, come in with that confidence to ask um, and to, and, and not just ask, but to really go and try to get it and don't let anybody humble you. You know, I think that women were also, were, were often told to be humble and we're not really groomed to have the type of confidence um, where we're, you know, even able to accept compliments or say, okay, like, or celebrate our wins and our accomplishments. And so, you know, often when, you know, somebody says, oh, you're doing such a good job. Like, you know, we try to downplay it like, oh, yeah, I'm doing OK. Like now when people yeah. tell me this is really great and this is really cool, I just say thank you. You know, I'm <laughs> yeah. never going to try to say, oh, yeah, no. But uh, if anything, it's like, thank you. I'm just getting started. Like, yeah, you, yes. you think right now it, it looks good. Like, wait until you see what it's going to look like even a week from now, a month from now. Um, so yeah, don't be afraid to brag on yourself. Don't be afraid to ask for what you want. Um, and don't be afraid once you get it. 
because you deserved it and you worked for it. Such, such good advice. That's amazing. Amira, thank you so much for coming on. It's truly a pleasure to have you. And I loved hearing your story. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this episode and are feeling so fired up to go out there and create that business or side hustle that's been on your to-do list, you know, a little bit longer than you care to admit. It is never too late to make the first step towards the life you want more than anything else. If you haven't already, make sure you are subscribed to the show so that you never miss an episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, keep becoming the woman of your wildest dreams.